Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special temporary primary host of the show. Today, I am joined by Greg Knuckles. He is currently, uh, for the time being, the permanent guest co-host for now. Um, If you enjoy the show and you'd like to support it, there are many ways you could do that. You could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. You could join our newsletter. Uh, We send out an email with a bunch of research updates. Uh, You could do that by going to strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. You could check out our coaching program. We offer one-on-one virtual online coaching uh, for various endeavors related to strength and fitness and sports nutrition. You can check that out at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. You could use our discount code at bulksupplements.com. The code is SBSPOD. It gets you 5% off your order. You could check out the Mass Research Review, which we publish every single month, or you could check out our diet app, which is called MacroFactor, and it does offer a free trial. All right, uh, Road to the Stage, how's it going? Road to the Stage is going well. So after, uh, after a couple somewhat rocky weeks, uh, I hit a new low this week, both in terms of scale weight and trended weight, uh, 224.2. feel pretty good about that. Uh, and just as an update on two things, so I mentioned, I think maybe three or four episodes ago that I was kicking around the idea of maybe trying to get under 225 and then taking a break for a little bit, uh, still feeling good. So, uh, going to push it to at least 220 and then, and then maybe reevaluate from there. Uh, and then the other thing just to give a brief update on is I think I mentioned either last episode or two episodes ago that I was trying a little experiment with my diet where uh, pretty much all I'm eating is just meat and fruit. And uh, so far, it's going great. Uh, Satiety is excellent. Most fruit, very high on the satiety index. Uh, Loving the food itself. Uh, I love fruit. Um, So, you know, having that be close to two-thirds of my diet is excellent. Uh, Well, close to two-thirds by calories, but... probably like 80% by just like pure volume. Uh, And it's also been unexpectedly great for hydration. So at most meals, I'm eating like a kilogram of fruit. Fruit is mostly water. So that is in effect similar to drinking a liter of water with most meals. Uh, I am chronically underhydrated. I don't like drinking things. I find it annoying. Uh, Wish humans didn't have to drink. I wish we were more like cats. So if you've ever wondered why cat piss smells so bad, it's because they have hyper-efficient kidneys and are really, really good at concentrating uh, everything down so that their urine is, like, hyper-concentrated. And also, uh, I believe this is true, I don't think cats sweat. Uh, So, like, they lose water via exhalation and they minimize water loss uh, via urination and don't really lose water otherwise. So they don't have to drink that much. Uh, And... I wish humans were the same way. That would be ideal. Uh, this this is a fun fact about cats that I that I am quite confident is true. Uh, so you know how humans can't drink salt water. Like if you're stranded in the ocean, that will on net dehydrate you. You can, but it won't get you far. Correct. So cats can't actually hydrate themselves on ocean water. Like that is that is how efficiently they can uh, they can concentrate solutes in their urine. So anyway, wish I was a cat, but I'm not. Uh, and given that set of facts, eating fruit has been good for keeping me hydrated. 
Now, we took a, kind of like a company Stronger by Science trip uh, to the zoo this yes. past year. And I remember seeing a lot of very muscular primates eating a lot of fruit. Do you feel like you're getting any of those benefits, um, getting <laughs> maybe superhuman strength? Uh, no, but that would be cool. Because mm -hmm. um, so, there, there were some themes like that in the Game Changers documentary that I take at face value. I'm wondering if it panned out. Yeah, so I, I've posted about this before. Uh, and, and every time it comes up in my Facebook memories, I reshare it cause I think it's cool. Um, but yeah, like from time to time people will be like, oh yeah, like, uh, gorillas, they're super jacked. Uh, they eat either no meat or very little meat. Uh, most of the foods they eat are low protein. So how are they so jacked? And it's like, well, first they're, they're a different species and that's. <laughs> Damn it. I knew there was something I was missing. That's potentially relevant. Yeah. Uh, you know. Elephants, elephants are herbivores. They're fucking jacked, but they're, uh, turns out, a different animal. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that's one thing. But the other thing is, like, yeah, uh, gorilla physiology is more similar to human physiology than, say, elephant physiology is. Uh, but the thing with, with uh, gorillas is it doesn't matter, really, the protein content of the food they eat because they eat so much goddamn food. Uh Again, I didn't pull this up before we started recording. Didn't know we'd be talking about gorillas. Uh, but if memory serves, they eat either around 20 kilograms of food per day or around 40 kilograms of food per day. It's one of the two. It's just an absurd amount of food. And it is enough food that, like, they'll eat some bugs, they'll eat some fruit, they'll eat some leaves, they'll eat some bark. Uh, and with the exception of bugs, all of those are relatively low protein. But when you just kind of like average it out and math it out, given the amount of food they're eating, they're probably still getting in like 250, 300 grams of protein per day just because they're eating so much food. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not eating that much, unfortunately. So I do I do still have to have some protein rich foods in my diet. Uh, but if I could eat as much food as a gorilla and not have to, to worry about that, that would be pretty cool. Yeah, and just the, the kind of standard disclaimer, you are not doing this to mimic the purportedly health-promoting diet of, what, what is it, Carnivore MD or uh, Saladino? I can never remember if it's Paul Saladino or Joey Saladino. It's Paul. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But, yeah. Um, but I, I did see one of his posts the other day where he was uh, kind of speaking out against the use of soap and toothpaste. <laughs> Have you adopted any of those? Well, I'm in the room. I, I would be able to tell, I think. Uh, well, <laughs> well, I, I I beat him to the punch on the no soap thing. Uh, here's a here's a beauty tip from the Stronger by Science podcast. Oh, boy. Uh, so I, I not infrequently get compliments on my skin. I have very clear skin. Uh, people ask me, what do you do? My answer, nothing. So I shampoo my hair. That's it. Everything else, just rinse off with water. Uh, and <laughs> I think that, uh, I don't know. I think that my my physiology is perfectly adapted to this the southern sweltering heat. And my skin produces the correct amount of oils to stay hydrated and vibrant. Um, but yeah, no, I, I have never really used soap that's ever. horrible that's bad. Uh, but i do brush my teeth okay that's yeah. good 
Uh, all right, feats of strength. What do you got? Feats of strength. So, uh, uh, IPF Worlds were uh, were recent. They they took place recently, and so there were a lot of big performances. And instead of trying to go through all of them in one segment, I think I'm going to split it up between two weeks. Uh, and so in this one, I'm going to talk about the women's side of things, and next week I'm going to talk about uh, big performances on the men's side of things. So starting with the lightweights, Tiffany Chapon uh, is just laying waste to the lightweight classes. She competed at uh, at 43 for quite a while. She moved up to 47 a couple years ago. Uh, still holds the total world record at 43, and uh, she set or broke her own world record at 47. Can't remember which. Um, but she, she has like 18 kilos of clearance over second place now. And uh, she also broke the squat and bench press world records in the 47 class as well. Just a truly dominant performance. She, uh, she owns those two lightest weight classes for now. Uh, moving on to 52 kilos, uh, Plune Decker and uh, Noemi Alibert had a great squat battle at 52. Uh, they hit the two all-time biggest squats uh, in that weight class with Decker's winning out by half a kilo. Uh, she squatted 168.5 to uh, 168 even for Alibert. Uh Also in the 57 class, Donna Berglund set a bench press world record at 123 kilos, which is like 271. So huge bench uh, in that class. Um, moving on to deadlift, uh, Fareed Farhana, who I had never heard of before. This is... <laughs> This is her first uh, recorded meet in the Open Powerlifting database. Um, she just rolls up and pulls a 200.5 kilo deadlift at 52 kilos, which is, uh, what, 442 at, like, 114? So that's, that's a monstrous pull. And in the 57 kilo class, uh, Joy Namani uh, from Great Britain, I believe, pulled 228 kilos uh, at 57, and uh, in in freedom units, that pull breaks the 500-pound barrier in that weight class, which, again, just a, just a tremendous pull from her. Uh, and then uh, Bobby Butters, who currently holds the 57-kilo uh, squat record at 185, uh, won, won gold for the squat in the meet with a 183 squat. Shout out to her. Uh, she is a Macro Factor affiliate. Very cool. You should follow her. And then finally, probably the, the battle of the event, not just on the women's side of things, but for the entire competition, was the battle at 76 kilos uh, between Jessica Bittner and Agata Sitko. Um, so it, it, was like, it was like a heavyweight title fight with just two, two monsters just trading... Uh, just trading haymakers in the middle of the ring. So starting off with the squat, uh, Jessica Bittner set a squat world record at 218.5 to, to put her ahead coming out of the gate. Moving on to bench, Sitko fires back, uh, hits a world record of her own at 145 kilos to, to pull ahead in the subtotal. So it all comes down to the deadlift. Uh, where uh, Jessica Bittner needs to pull 261.5 for a world record and the heaviest deadlift ever pulled on the women's side of things in IPF competition ever. Uh, so 
it all comes down to can she pull one of the best deadlifts uh, ever pulled in the IPF? And she does. She pulls it off. Uh, and they actually tied in the total. So they they both uh, they both set the world record for the total in that weight class. But uh, Jessica won on body weight. She weighed in at uh, 75.2 compared to Sitco 75.6. So it was as close as a meet could possibly... Well, I guess they could have been 0.1 kilo away in body weight instead of 0.4. But within reason, it's as close as a head-to-head battle in powerlifting could possibly be with uh, with world records set on every lift, uh, all like all throughout the battle, and uh, ending with a, a tie in both people setting world record totals. So uh, congrats to them. Uh, huge, huge performance. Also, Jessica Bittner, Macro Factor affiliate. Check her out as well. Man, there must be something to Macro Factor. A lot of success. I don't think... It has, yeah, maybe it, it helped them make weight. Don't think it has anything to do with, with the weights they're lifting, but... Uh, I'm comfortable taking all the credit. Sh- sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, that would be cool, though. Yeah. Um, so speaking of macro factor, we've got uh, a brief tech support segment here um, that actually corresponds with an article that we put out. Mm-hmm. So we uh, kind of revamped and launched uh the macro factor website itself you know we we had been kind of housing some macro factor content on stronger by science uh, but now macro factor has its own website macrofactorapp.com and we've got a new article uh if you go to macrofactorapp.com slash fastest food logger so that's kind of the the tease for what the segment is about do you want to give a little insight about what the article covers, um, basically the big food logger revamp. Uh, yeah, sure. I was uh, I was going to review my notes while you did your your next segment, but uh, yeah, let's let's see if I can do this off the dome. So, um, a hurdle when it comes to uh, getting into food logging or sticking with food logging once it's become a habit is just simply the amount of time it takes to log food and the friction associated with that. So, you know, if you're going to eat a meal and not log it uh, versus eat a meal and log it, not logging it saves time. It's one less thing you need to think about, one less thing you need to worry about. So trying to minimize the amount of time, effort, and friction associated with food logging, um, you know, seems like a, a pretty important thing to focus on. So uh, after Macro Factor came out, um, Corey and Rebecca, our, our developers, they did a ton of market research to uh, try to figure out how to make our food logger even more efficient. Like it it was one of the more efficient on the market to begin with in terms of the total number of taps or discrete actions that it took to accomplish core food logging workflows. Uh, But there were some apps that beat us on some flows. So they did a ton of research to figure out how to save actions wherever possible. Um, while still providing all of the context and information you would need and want when uh, when logging food. And so that that all rolled out uh, within the past month or so. Uh, and and in association with the new food logger, uh, and um, you know, in, in order to know whether or not we had accomplished the goal we wanted to, 
Uh, Corey created a scoring system for ranking the speed of the speed and efficiency of food loggers. Uh, and one thing I'll note is this wasn't a system that was designed after the fact in order to make macro factors food logger look good. Uh, it was a system designed on the front end to one figure out how our food logger stacked up to others, uh, and then two to uh, essentially evaluate whether the redesign and the revamp did what we wanted it to do. So in his system, there are four use cases. So one is logging foods via search, like searching for the food. One is logging foods via multi-add. One is logging foods via barcode scanning. And one is just quick adding uh, calories or macros without logging a food associated with them. Um, and Because th those are the ways that most people are going to be logging most foods most of the time. And so essentially it's just a matter of counting up how many taps or discrete actions it takes to log food via those flows. And uh, the new macro factor food logger is either the fastest or tied for the fastest across all four of those flows and is uh, considerably faster than, than anything else out there now by, by a pretty hefty margin. Um, so yeah, if uh, if you currently log food or you've previously logged food and you just think like, ah, eh, like this is, I, I see benefits from it, but just the act of logging food itself is a chore, um, give macro factor a shot. It might provide uh, a, a enough of a reduced amount of friction that it goes from being something that is too onerous of a chore to stick with to... Uh, you know, only a bit of a chore and uh, not not as annoying as uh, logging food in other apps. So uh, yeah, check out Macro Factor and check out the article itself, which will be linked in the show notes if you want to read it and uh, dig further into the scoring methodology. Yeah. And, you know, we felt it was important to make the article public and, and kind of publish it in that format just because, you know, any food logger is going to come out and say, actually, did you know that our food logger is very good and fast? Like yeah. everyone's going to say that. So the reason we published the article is so that you can actually take a look at the methodology that goes into it um, and, and kind of rigorously examine the tasks that were completed and how efficiency was basically uh, objectively quantified within this system. So uh, yeah, like Greg said, uh, it's definitely worth checking out, uh, especially if you have previously checked out Macro Factor and you're like, you know what, I was hoping for something that was an even more efficient logging process. Um, you know, we still have a free trial. Check it out again. See if you like the new logger and go from there. Yeah. I mean, ultimately our goal with Macro Factor is we want it to be not just the best like quote unquote diet coaching app uh but just the the best food logger period um so we think that uh we think we've accomplished that i mean honestly so in, in terms of things that someone might be looking for when when using a food logger the the only major area where i perceive that any of our competitors presently still have a leg up over us is in database size and and that's only for a couple apps so you know my fitness pal is always going to have the biggest database they have the most users they've been around forever they also have 170 entries for an oreo and 
that some percentage of them are correct. Yeah, that that is also true. There there is the highest odds that you will find what you're looking for, and also the highest odds that it might take you a little while to find what you're looking for. Like it it's probably in there, but there might be some some chaff you have to wade through. Uh, and and lose it is comparable. Um, so also this the same type of deal. Uh, largely user submitted database, huge database, fair number of inaccurate entries. It is both not quite as big, but also not quite as cluttered as my fitness pal. Um, and then for for Central European users specifically, uh, Yazio I think has has the best database for that market. Um, but then kind of the the next tier down from that. You, you're going to find a lot of other very large, successful apps. So uh, like My Net Diary, for instance, Chronometer, um, who else? Fat Secret. Uh, and our, our database is comparable to those. So, you know, th- that is one key area where I would say Macro Factor is kind of on the second tier of competitors in, in terms of just total size of database for everything else i mean i like this is obviously not a completely unbiased assessment but i I do think we have the best food logging system out there uh i think is in in terms of just the diet coaching app space uh i think that our app does that better than our competitors um so yeah i it's it's still relatively new but i feel i feel really really good about uh the state of the app as it exists now, like we're, yeah. we're we're not just trying to swim in the kiddie pool. Like we're 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 going after the big dogs in the space and and trying to compete head to head with them. Yeah, and, and there are two things to keep in mind with the database. So the first one, as we've kind of alluded to, is, I mean, we can make the database bigger tomorrow if we just said, hey, everybody, uh, put in a bunch of entries. But but what's really nice about our current database is that it is rock solid in terms of accuracy. So there's kind of that. Uh, that trade-off there where if you start to invite user-submitted entries without a pretty good verification system, you you can run into a situation where you say, great, bigger database, but now I have to spend twice as much time figuring out which foods I want to actually log. Uh, And our database, we did, if you tried it when we first launched, we took uh, a pretty big step in improving that database uh, to get more coverage in other countries outside of the United States. Uh, so I think we've mentioned that on the podcast previously, but if you tried Macro Factor like right around the time it launched and you were in, uh, you know, you were outside of the United States and saying, I wish there was a little more coverage, uh, it might be worth checking out again just to see if, if what we did to uh, bolster that database uh, specifically enhanced coverage in your country. Yeah, and, and just one more thing to add. So, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you're like, hey, I'm not going to pay for uh, a food logger, that's totally fair, totally understandable. Uh, so to make sure that this uh, that this segment still contains information that's useful and valuable, even for people who don't want to use Macro Factor, what I would encourage you to do, if you're currently a MyFitnessPal user, is to try something else. Uh, like as as someone who is now uh, a, a competitor in the food logger space and has has done a fair bit of competitor analysis, uh, my fitness pal isn't that great of software. Um, like I, I think it's just the default because it's been around for so long and has the largest market share. And I think that there's the natural inclination to assume 
that if something has the most users, it must therefore necessarily be the best. But in terms of, of just like the free food loggers on the market, MyFitnessPal is not that good. So if you're currently using MyFitnessPal, you don't want to pay for something, but you, you would just like to use a free food logger. Um, I would recommend potentially checking out LoseIt, like I mentioned before, database comparable to MyFitnessPal, uh, but far more efficient food logging flows. And it, it's just a slicker piece of software. Uh, I would also recommend checking out uh, my net diary. So it is one that does use a verified food database. So you won't have to worry about sifting through as many inaccurate entries. Uh, it also has a lot more efficient food logging flows than, than my fitness pal does also a really solid app. Uh, if you, if you don't want to pay for something and uh, chronometer as well. So it doesn't have hyper efficient food logging flows, but in terms of the free apps out there, I think it probably has the best overall database, especially for people who are interested in tracking micronutrients as well. Um, but yeah, for for most people, I I would recommend one of those three over MyFitnessPal just just for free food logging. And I and I don't make a dime off of those recommendations. Uh, but you know, if if you don't want to to pay money and try out MacroFactor. All three of those apps in the free food logging space are considerably better than than MyFitnessPal. So if you get annoyed with MyFitnessPal and decide like, yeah, you know, I, I, I want to look around a little bit, see what's out there. Um, those are those are three very solid free apps. Nice. All right. Uh, next segment here. I'm not really sure what it would fall under uh, in terms of our our standard segment names. Uh, but this is just, uh, just talking shit, just updates related to science. Uh, and I'm going to start out with the conclusions. Uh, the conclusions are twofold. First of all, if you're someone who reads science paper by paper, uh, just be careful out there, folks. Um, I'm going to talk about a couple trends I'm seeing that seem to be catching, you know, catching some momentum here. And I'm not, not fond of the trends. Uh, the other conclusion is that, uh, this is something, if you're a mass subscriber, you've kind of heard me allude to this probably twice now in audio roundtables, but I think the hierarchy of evidence um, is within our field becoming less and less helpful as a heuristic. Uh, and the hierarchy of evidence, you know, the, the thing I'm really referring to is um, lending special status to the systematic review and meta-analysis. Um uh, traditionally speaking, that would be at the top of the hierarchy of evidence. You would consider it to be the highest level of evidence, uh, the uh, lowest risk of bias and things of that nature. Uh, but what I propose is that, you know, remember back in the day when we were kids, they had the uh, the food pyramid in, in the United States and there was all the grains at the bottom and then fruits and vegetables and then meat and dairy. Yeah. And then uh, oils at the top and oils and sweets and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then all of a sudden they're like, actually, psych, these are going to be all vertical tiers. And then we're going to have somebody walking up the side of the pyramid, just yeah. kind of scaling the entire thing, saying like, hey, you should also exercise. I think we need to kind of reshape the hierarchy of evidence and just have meta analyses just kind of floating around it like an electron cloud. Ooh, there is something like that. While while you're talking, I I will pull it up. It's it's a cool little graphic that I think we could put in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so th that's those are my my conclusions. Uh, I want to talk about wh why I've arrived at those conclusions. I I saw a very uh, insightful tweet by um, 
Patty Ekakis. I, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> link his profile because uh, I I did find it to be very uh, uh an, an interesting trend that that he pointed out. So he he plotted uh, a little graph here, um, looking at PubMed PubMed entries per year going all the way back to like the it looks like the 80s, and one line is plotting randomized controlled trials over time, uh, within exercise science. And the other line is plotting uh, systematic reviews uh, over time. And what's happened, I mean, if you've been loosely following the literature, you've probably noticed within the last few years, like, man, there's really a trend going on here with a lot more systematic reviews and meta-analyses. But what's really interesting is that there was kind of like an inflection point back around 2015-ish where systematic reviews in our field and this is an informal analysis i'm sure uh but there's a a divergence where systematic reviews started outpacing randomized controlled trials yeah and theoretically the idea with a systematic review is that uh you know there's a, a body of literature that's growing and growing and growing through you know kind of primary pieces of of research you know it randomized controlled trials when it's feasible to do so or other types of research depending on the question and then as that body of literature accumulates you say you know what i think this literature is ripe it's ready for a systematic review and if in doing that systematic review i realize that quantitative summary would be appropriate i might even do a meta-analysis along with that systematic review of the Mm -hmm. literature and that's just simply not the way systematic reviews and meta-analyses seem to be functioning in our field over the last few years. Yeah. There certainly are some that do that. But man, you know, you look back over the last few years and you see so many meta-analyses that are like, yeah, we had uh, we had three studies. So I, I'll, I'll give you a little diamond <laughs> at the bottom of the plot. Yeah. Um, and even one thing I saw recently that kind of broke my heart as a systematic review purist um, I'm one of those sociopaths that reads the reviewer reports uh, <laughs> for the journals that publish them. Yeah. So like some journals will publish not just the finished paper, but also the comments from peer reviewers throughout the rounds of review. Uh, sometimes I dig into those and I came across one the other day and it was it was like it was really alarming to me because they're like, yeah, this is a fine narrative review, but like it would sure be cooler and more exciting if it just was instead a systematic review. Yeah. And, and so the, the, the underlying logic there was not this literature demands a systematic review and it would have much more value and utility. It was just like, hey, systematic reviews are very fashionable right now. You should go ahead and retrofit a systematic search and go from there. So to me, I think one of the things that's really um, potentially a, a troubling set of trends in the field is that people seem to be more interested in the brand or like the marketability of a systematic review or a meta-analysis rather than the actual utility of what a really well-done systematic review or meta-analysis provides. Uh, and so that's kind of what I'm getting at when I say with this hierarchy of evidence, yes, a, a really well done systematic review or meta analysis 
when done on a body of literature or a research question that is suitable for that uh, is excellent. You know, it is still a, a tremendous form of evidence and the highest level of evidence. But man, you know, uh, you, it's becoming apparent sometimes uh, when you open up a review and you say, there's no way this started as a systematic review or maybe it did, but it absolutely shouldn't have. And yeah. like, this does not possess the the qualities and characteristics that make a systematic review so effective and special as a form of evidence. Well, I, I mean, you, you know why that is, right? No. Like, so there's, I, I think in large part, it's people just responding rationally to incentives. So if you're, if you're trying to, uh, both, both grow your CV and like trying to improve your H index or something like that, um, you know, a lot of work does go into a systematic review or meta-analysis. Like, a, a lot of work goes into just about any type of discrete scientific output. But the amount of work and effort that goes into it is almost always considerably less than the amount of work and effort that would go into, uh, like, conducting an original study. Um, and in addition to that, if you're... So, like, one, you can you can crank out reviews faster... And, and kind of pad out that CV. And then the other thing is to, to demonstrate, um, you know, both, both your research output, but also that people like read and cite your research output. Um, metrics like ancient indices and just general citation counts. Uh, reviews, review papers get cited a lot more on average than original research does. So if you're responding to those incentives, like you're trying to, to boost your H index and just trying to get more pubs on your CV, uh, you will one imp generally improve your H index more with a, a decent systematic review or, or meta analysis than you would with most original research. That's not always true. You know, if you publish a, a groundbreaking study in some uh, brand new area of research, like that's going to get cited a lot. But for the most part, if there's like 15 studies on a topic already. If you do a meta-analysis on those 15 studies, it's going to get cited more than just the 16th study on that topic. Uh, and yeah, it's it's generally quicker and easier to do. So, like, I, I understand why people are doing it. Yeah. And it, it's good for the journals because they're they're uh, they're getting cited more, so it, it improves the journal's impact factor. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. And by the way, you mentioned uh, the time investment for a systematic review or meta-analysis. Someone who works in a different academic field uh, might have fainted when hearing oh, yeah, that. Yeah. It is worth in, noting. In exercise physiology. <laughs> yeah, a, a lot of the metas that we're talking about here, we're talking about a meta-analysis on, you know, four, six, eight, ten studies. Um, and, and sometimes that's warranted depending on on the, the type of data that are available. But, um, but any, you know, it, I, my, my girlfriend did a PhD in psychology and like when they do a meta-analysis, it's you're talking about at least four digits in the number of studies included in most cases. You're talking about thousands, not uh, not six. I mean, the, this is something we've talked about before off mic, but if, if anything in our field, it seems like people might be afraid of doing meta-analyses when there will be a lot of studies and it will therefore take a lot of time and effort. Like yeah. uh, one, of, one of the areas you've brought up before is like creatine research. Yeah. Where the last time there was a meta on... Uh, the impact of creatine supplementation on hypertrophy and strength outcomes. Didn't she say it's like 2011 or something? No. Oh God, no. It's like 2003. Okay, so it's fucking old. Uh, now, now, 
there are updates since then that are in special populations. Yeah, yeah. So people yeah. will be like, oh, we're going to look in the elderly right. and find like yeah. 17 studies, you know. But yeah, like just a broad like, hey, we know there's been like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of creatine studies. Has anyone kind of stitched those together for a meta? To my, I haven't seen it. To my knowledge, that hasn't happened. No, I, I believe you're correct. And and that would be really valuable. But yeah, I mean, like, like you said, uh, a meta can absolutely take a ton of time and effort if there are enough studies. There, there are very few bodies of research in our field that do have that many studies. And the ones that do exist tend to not have recent metas on them. So I, I do think... Uh, you know, get, getting a pub for slightly less effort is at least to some extent uh, a motivation there. Yeah, yeah, and and just kind of one thing that jumped out because I, yeah, I was looking at just like the proliferation of just the number of papers that that are coming out because like part of me was wondering if we would start to see a bit of a dip um, post COVID in our field with lab shutting. I mean, everyone I know who worked in a lab, it was shut down for a considerable amount of time. And of course, I understand people have studies sitting in the file drawer. People have reviews that they were planning to do. They've got studies that have been conducted six years ago they're going to publish. But man, I, I was looking at MDPI's numbers for publications per year. In 2018, MDPI, which has it's multidisciplinary, that's what the M stands for. Yeah. Um, and, and the D. Yeah. But, uh, they published in 2018 67,000 papers. That climbed steadily. And in 2021, they published 240,000 papers. And, you know, th they have several journals within our field. And one of the things I've noticed is that with this uh, rapid increase in re narrative reviews, systematic reviews, meta analyses, it seems that there's a lot of people who are publishing. The, these papers that's like yeah I, I either couldn't do a study the last couple of years or maybe didn't want to um, but i'm just going to kind of carve out an angle here on a particular topic and, and put a review out there and they're getting picked up and published very rapidly and you know they're, they're all over the place i mean the, the number of papers coming out in this field is so high these days uh, and in some cases, I do think that it leads to potentially more confusion rather than clarity because we're getting so many more perspective papers out and not nearly enough just pieces of like, hey, here's original scholarship with new data, uh, a well-designed experiment that answers a specific question. Yeah. And of course, there's there's people doing that, no question. But, but yeah, just if, if you're someone who's out there digging through the literature piece by piece um, and, you know, you really lean heavily on the hierarchy of evidence as a heuristic. Um, I just think it's important to recognize that that heuristic is, in my opinion, getting chipped away at a little bit as systematic reviews are no longer quite resembling what they were intended to be within our field. Yeah, so the the paper I had in mind that proposed a slight update to to the the pyramid of evidence is by Murad and colleagues. I, I linked it in the show notes. Oh, it's cool. it's right there, like at the at the top uh, of this section. Um, but it, it's called a new evidence pyramid by Murad and colleagues, published in BMJ uh, Evidence Based Medicine, and. Uh, it basically proposes that instead of just having that pyramid with straight lines across uh, denoting the separation between different types of research, 
Uh, one, instead of straight lines, they should be kind of wavy. So, you know... Uh, you know what it looks like? What? It looks like um, w- when I was in junior high, they gave us the glasses to make it seem like you're drunk. And then oh, they're yeah, like, yeah. hey, try to walk a straight line. The drunk goggles. Yeah, that's what it looks like. <laughs> it does kind of. Uh, yeah, they, they could have gotten a better designer. Um, but yeah, so... Uh, you know, from the bottom up, you have case series, case reports, then you have case control studies, then you have cohort studies, then you have RCTs, and then at the top, you have systematic reviews and meta-analyses. So they propose that for everything but systematic reviews and meta-analyses, instead of just like straight lines denoting differences between them, it should be kind of wavy lines to denote that, you know, in general, randomized control trials are higher quality evidence and more valuable than cohort studies, but a really, really good cohort study might be more valuable than a somewhat poorly done RCT. Uh, you know, cohort studies generally more valuable than case control studies, but a good enough case control study might be more valuable than a poorly done cohort study, uh, etc. So that that's kind of what they're getting at with the wavy lines. And then they just lop off the top of the pyramid uh, so systematic reviews and meta-analyses are no longer on the pyramid itself. It's kind of the, the handle of a magnifying glass that you can peer through to look at the other types of evidence, which I think is a nice way of looking at it, because uh, ultimately they, they are aiming to give you uh, perspective on the original research that's been published. Um, but ultimately, like, original investigations are are the foundation like that that needs to get done if you want to review it um and yeah it seems like there's more and more focus on pumping out systematic reviews and meta-analyses potentially to some extent at the expense of original research yeah and and to be fair i know people are going to be thinking you're very very dumb huge blind spot there is some possibility that covid related lab closures are fueling what we're seeing the last year or two you know but but like i said this divergence seems like it was starting around like 2015 so like we'll see if in the next few years if it corrects and it was just a a little bit of a blip but um i don't know time will tell we'll see i i do like their magnifying glass uh approach i think that's better than my electron cloud but uh this is the this is the second time that i've regretted thinking independently because uh, it never gets me anywhere. Because <laughs> like every time I have something that starts to approximate a decent original idea, I realize that somebody, I later find out that somebody already had it. Um, I told you the story about when I invented a statistical technique as a, a graduate student. And then I found out it had been invented about 50 years ago and then was replaced about 30 years ago with something better. Yeah. Uh, never try to think on your own it it will get you nowhere in life that that's my conclusion i could not agree more so i i have just like one little thing to add to this this segment while we're ah just just generally talking shit about scientific publishing talking talking shop not talking (laughs) shit sure it's it's all a matter of perspective um but so i i came across uh something on twitter the other day uh a new paper uh from uh, uh, Journal of Clinical Epidemiology by Gabalika and colleagues. Title is Many Researchers. Uh, it's it's a perspective paper. Um, many researchers were not compliant with their published data sharing statement: colon mixed method study. So the the title gives the findings away. Um, 
But in, in general, there's kind of, at least like socially, a push towards open science. And part of open science is data sharing. And data sharing is valuable for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, you know, in, in terms of kind of like an enforcement mechanism almost. If someone wanted to do something kind of iffy with their data, uh, let's say, to, to put it nicely, uh, if you know that you will have to share data with people who request it, you might be less likely to try to get away with some shenanigans. And if someone tries to get away with some shenanigans, it's uh, it's easier to catch that stuff if, if data is available. Um, and then for kind of more positive reasons, uh, I think we've talked about this before. So, you know, in discussing systematic reviews and meta-analyses, they're very valuable. Uh, but if you can just do a meta on kind of summary data in studies, um, that doesn't that doesn't let you answer quite as many questions or estimate things with quite as much precision or probe quite as many sub-analyses as you might be able to if uh, all of the data from the underlying studies were available. And then you could do kind of a subject level meta-analysis, which is uh, one step better than just kind of like a normal meta. Um, so it, that might sound like a small distinction, but it's pretty huge yeah, in terms yeah. of capability. Yeah. If you have the individual level data from each of the studies, instead of just using the group average, it, it's it's a tremendous step up. Yeah. Uh, and and you actually did one of, one of the first subject level metas... Uh, that I've seen in our field with the the P ratio back and forth. It doesn't count. Year. It was in a blog. It's yeah. not real science. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, yeah, there there are a lot of reasons why you might want open data or in data sharing. There's um, you know there there's bad behaviors that it can cut off, and then there's positive outcomes that uh, are furthered by open data and data sharing. And so most of the time when when data is to be made available for a study, generally the data sheet isn't just uploaded uh, along with the article. Uh, there there are pros and cons as to why maybe you would want to just upload your data sheet or why you might not want to upload your data sheet. That's a conversation for another day. But most of the time when data is available, uh, generally there is a data availability statement that essentially says, hey, we're not uploading our data sheet as an attachment in a supplementary file. But uh, the data is available upon reasonable request. Here's the corresponding author's email address. Shoot them an email. And, uh, you know, as long as your request is reasonable, we will share this data with you. So uh, the, the authors of this study basically wanted to see how true is that. And I'm glad someone did this research because in my experience, uh, data availability statements are lies. Uh, I, th there have been so many instances. <laughs> They're aspirational. Yeah, yeah. Again, it depends how you frame it. Uh, but yeah, there have been so many times where I'm reading a study. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I, I'd like to get into this a little bit more. Uh, you know, the the journal site, it'll say like data is available upon reasonable request. And I say, cool, I'm going to ask for the data. I'm a reasonable and, guy. I, yeah. I'd like to request it. And so I have asked for for data and I think my requests are reasonable. I've asked for data probably 40 or 50 times, and I've gotten it like twice. Uh, so in my experience, yeah, their data availability statements are mostly bullshit. Did you know those people, the, the two that gave w it to one you? One of the two, yeah. yeah. 
Um, so yeah, in terms of just cold emails, we're we're batting like one out of fifty. Yeah. So not not great. Uh, so the the authors of this study um, essentially wanted to study this phenomenon in a more systematic way. So they they pulled up like three thousand plus articles that had data avail- availability statements. The most common one was the the type that I just mentioned, where it says data is available upon reasonable request, and they wanted to see. Of those, if we make a reasonable request, how many data sets will we actually get? Uh, And so of like close to 1,800 uh, requests, uh, close to 1,700, uh, there were close to 1,700 instances of the corresponding authors either simply ignoring the email, like not responding, which could be an intentional choice, could be people changing institutions and the the corresponding author email address no longer works. But uh, so either getting no response or getting a response and the researcher saying, no, you can't have the data. Uh, And then um, only a hundred, there were only 122 instances out of close of eight, close to 1800 where people did actually turn over the requested data. So that's, that's a success rate of 6.8%. and they also like they they emailed uh, authors who didn't have data availability statements as well, basically wanting to see how many of these people will turn over their data compared to the people who say that they're willing to turn over their data. And it was basically the same. Uh, so basically, the, those data availability statements are just kind of placebos, like people kind of gesturing in the direction of like, yeah, we believe in open science, we believe in open data, but. Uh, when the rubber meets the road, 93% of the time, uh, yeah, those those data availability statements are are. I don't want to I don't want to impugn any single person's honor, but in terms of like on a systematic level, on average, those statements are lies. Like yeah. they say you can have the data, 93% of the time you can't have the data. Yeah, and there's also just like it's just structurally a bad way to do that mm-hmm. um, because you know a lot of times it's like you know either explicitly or implicitly you feel like you're supposed to put your institutional uh, email address for that as the corresponding author, but like a lot of institutions won't even let you keep access to your email after you leave. Yeah, and so there are some like built-in mechanisms to make that kind of the worst possible way to do data gathering of mm-hmm. just like yeah give me put down your institutional email so it looks like you're official uh and god forbid you graduate or ever get a different job then i'll have no way to find you yeah, uh, yeah. which is not great but but yeah I, I doubt that that explains 1700 instances yeah i mean if if you have a yeah i i don't know i i'm not going to uh I'm not. I'm not going to to take any wild swings, but I don't think that would move the needle all yeah. that much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that is our update on the state of science. Uh, things are looking good. <laughs> and moving on, we've got some Q and A's. I'm gonna like go rapid fire, get a few in to make sure that we have some good uh, practical takeaways okay. from this episode. Uh, first of all, I've got a question from Harry. Uh, Harry has a question after listening to the recent episode about calories. Um, so methods like TDEE calculators can only go so far and you have to adjust from there. But what exactly does adjust mean? 
Uh, is there more nuance than just estimating a total daily energy expenditure and then finding out weeks or months later if it roughly worked? Um, so first, there's just like this straightforward uh, answer of, you know, this whole adjustment process. What are we really doing? Uh, and Greg, you've written two articles that I think explain this really well, just talking about the quantifiable mathematical link between changes in body tissues, uh, in body mass, and uh, energy balance. Uh, so I'm going to link both of those uh, articles in the show notes. One is strongerbyscience.com slash energy balance calories. The other strongerbyscience.com slash macro factor algorithms philosophy. So this uh, general concept is core to the way that macro factor generally works in terms of algorithmic algorithmic adjustments. Uh, the idea here is that, you know, if you can look at the relative change in the total amount of body tissues, uh, using body weight as a proxy for that, making some estimations about how much of the tissue change is fat mass versus lean mass, you can actually, by tracking your nutrition intake and tracking your body weight and body composition changes, you can quantify an estimate of your energy balance. And so, for example, uh, if you assume a particular caloric intake should get you on track with your intended rate of weight loss, but you're noticing that weight loss is a little bit faster than, than you intended, you're noticing that fat mass is being lost at an accelerated rate, you can actually go in and quantify, okay, how much larger is my energy deficit than I actually intended? And so then you can make an adjustment uh, either to your, your, your energy expenditure or most likely your energy intake because uh, it's a little bit more easily modifiable. Uh, and you can do that adjustment process. So uh, the good news, you know, the, the question asked, is this the type of thing where you just have to you know, take a swing at it and then figure out three months later, oh, I gained a bunch of fat. I, I didn't want that to happen. The good news is it doesn't have to take that long. It doesn't have to be this really extended timeline. If you're able to track, um, you know, very precisely and really keep an eye on things, you can do this adjustment process as you go. Uh, I will say that I think uh, a good software can be very helpful for this. Uh, it can be exceedingly difficult to try to make very small adjustments uh, if you're just kind of using the naked eye looking at a spreadsheet and saying, do I feel like I'm on the right track here in terms of my weight loss or weight gain trajectory? Uh, one of the, the big value adds, in my opinion, of a software like MacroFactor is that, you know, and we're not the only one, it's not like a sales pitch here, but one of the things that I think MacroFactor does really well is it does really nice weight trending features and helps you kind of quantify what does my energy balance actually look like here? What kind of adjustments need to be made now to get back on the intended rate of weight change or just get on, on track with maintenance? Uh, so with a good weight trending feature, it can kind of sort through the noisiness of day-to-day -day body weight uh, data and help you identify what kind of adjustment has to be made before you have to do something like wait four months and see if you gain six pounds. You know, it, it can facilitate making those adjustments in a, a much more uh, quicker time scale, which, you know, can, can potential, uh, potentially save you from some 
some lost time. If, if you were way off base with your estimate, you'd like to figure that out sooner rather than later. Um, but like I said, I'm going to link those uh, articles in the show notes and they go into a little bit more detail about exactly what is the uh, the theory underlying that adjustment process and then how something like our algorithm would go about doing that. Um, okay, next question. I'm going to do a couple about creatine. One's really quick. The other's a little bit more in depth. So Brian asked, are you able to functionally use the extra water that you store from creatine? Uh, would you be able to utilize that to, you know, for example, prevent dehydration? Uh, and the, the short answer is yes. So I'll link in the show notes, a really nice review paper, uh, that was actually written by a former roommate of mine, uh, Eric Sobolewski. Uh, he was, and is, was, and is an excellent scientist. He gave me the gem. One time we were in the lab, uh, I was asking him a question about study methods and he said, if you can't measure it in pounds, it's not worth measuring. (laughs) Uh, I think in his world, every study would either measure squat or bench press and that'd be, that'd be the end of it. Um, you, you also, you teed yourself up for a really good Bill Hicks reference and then completely you whiffed. So he used to be a good scientist, still is, but he also used to be. Yeah. That's fine. Um, so anyway, Sobolewski uh, was the lead author of this paper. And in this paper, which I said, you know, like I mentioned, I'll link it in the show notes. Um, uh, a quote here, a number of studies have demonstrated that when recommended amounts of creatine are consumed, creatine does not appear to increase the risk of heat-related problems during exercise and may actually have a positive influence on core temperature and heart rate responses. There's some indirect evidence indicating that someone who is taking creatine and is, is kind of, you know, their muscles are saturated with it, they're holding some extra water weight theoretically, uh, it does seem to have a neutral to slightly positive effect on things that would be indicative of uh, dehydration related to heat stress. So, uh, I wouldn't expect it to make a big difference, uh, but but can you use that water? Uh, my answer would be yes. Uh, in terms of dehydration or preventing heat-related illness while exercising, very neutral to slightly positive effect would be expected there. Uh, so Sobolewski also taught me how to do uh, 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 evoked uh, muscle twitches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he taught me the hard way by just zapping the shit out of my femoral nerve. Yeah. And God, that is not, it's not <laughs> like it's, it's the worst kind of thing because, uh, so he, he was doing, uh, electrically stimulated, um, contractions of my quads, I think, or yeah. no, I think he might've been, yeah, he was doing electrically, uh, I forget which muscle we were targeting and which nerve, but he was zapping the hell out of my nerve. My muscle was contracting over and over. And, uh, it's one of those, it's in that awful area where it doesn't hurt enough and it's not uncomfortable enough to actually complain about it, Yeah, but it's also not fun. Like yeah, I was like, I don't like this. It's like, uh, it's like the most, it's like somewhere between like a really intense pins and needles sensation and like slightly burny. Yeah. And yeah. just like a, a bit of a cramp. Yeah. Uh, if you, if you're doing enough of them. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you're like. I can't really get too whiny about this because I'd be a little embarrassed, but I also don't like this. Yeah, that's know? that's how I feel about toe injuries. <laughs> yeah, toe injuries true. suck. They ruin your day. They do. But in the grand scheme of things, you can't really complain about them because people will be like, it's your toe. Come on, just deal with it. Exactly. Yeah, so uh, 
hopefully that's a, a very on-topic answer for that question. Uh, another question that I think is really fascinating, uh, it's by John. And the question is, basically, what's the deal with research looking at cognitive benefits of creatine supplementation? Um, John mentions he, he saw some articles years ago talking about how exciting and promising this is, uh, but hasn't really heard a lot since. Um, there's some interesting ins and outs of the creatine literature when it comes to cognitive stuff. I think, I do think there's a little bit of bias, uh, in the sport nutrition world where like creatine does really well with muscle stuff. And, and I think people, there's just this kind of this glow surrounding creatine where you're like, oh, it's so great. It's got to be incredible for bone and it's got to be incredible for the brain. And it's, it's got to be incredible for every organ system and every tissue. And like, you know, you can go through one by one and say, okay, there's strong evidence here. There's decent evidence over here and, and all, all down the list. So I don't want to sound like I'm like a, a creatine skeptic or anything. Creatine's excellent. But when it comes to the brain stuff, uh, there's a, a little bit more nuance to it. So like, for example, when we, uh, you know, supplement with creatine, do a creatine loading phase or take, uh, you know, a, a maintenance dose for, you know, a, a month or two, we see pretty appreciable, pretty large increases in, uh, muscle creatine saturation. It's far more, uh, muted when it comes to brain creatine. So like if you look at the studies where they give creatine supplements and they try to increase brain levels, uh, I'm, I'm going to link a review in the show notes, but at the time that this review was written, I think in 2021, there had been 12 studies looking at human uh, brain creatine levels after supplementation. Generally speaking, uh, so so nine of the 12 showed a significant increase in brain creatine. Um, and we're talking about a magnitude of like 5 to 10%. I, I am intensely curious about this. How are they measuring that? Uh, I imagine they're not taking brain biopsies. Are no, they? I, I think they do the, uh, the, like, uh, the, you know, how, how they do like in the muscle when, when you can look for like carnosine content, like the, the PNMR, the, I think, or the MRS TMS. No, no. Um, I'll, I'll ah, whatever. We'll look into it. There, there's some, like um, some acronym. <laughs> it's related to MRI, yeah. but, but they can look at particular, uh, compounds within different tissues okay, okay. non-invasively. So like, um, with, with creatine, in, even in the muscle, they'll sometimes use this method. It's very similar to MRI. I think it's MRS or NMR. I'll have to look it up. Okay. Uh, we're going to look like dumbasses yeah, when this show goes out. I mean... It's some, we're, we're some not, acronym. We're not experts in medical imaging. <laughs> no, we're not. I feel like we threw out more potential acronyms there than the average person could. So I, I feel good about our performance. Yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> <laughs> Pick three letters, go. Yeah. Um, but anyway, th there is a non-invasive way to quantify this stuff. Um, usually, looks like it goes up maybe 5 to 10%. And I'll also note, it looks like there, there's some pretty decent evidence that you need a higher dose if you're trying to move the needle with brain creatine. And the reason I say that is like, when they look at a, a vegetarian versus an omnivore, when you look at muscle creatine, you can figure out pretty quick, like vegetarians generally have lower saturation of muscle creatine because they're getting less in the diet. It's very straightforward. If you look at brain content, vegetarian versus omnivore, there is not a, a noteworthy or detectable difference. Uh, so the amount coming in from like a normal diet is not even really moving the needle with brain creatine. A lot of that's just getting synthesized endogenously. Um, 
you know, like I said, there is some evidence that you can move the needle with supplementation with high doses, but like some of these studies are suggesting that you might need to do like four weeks of a loading dose. So, you know, muscle loading is like five or seven days at 20 grams a day. Some of these studies are suggesting like 20 grams a day for a month. Uh, and I don't even know what the, uh, how long you would have to maintain that 20 gram dose. I'm not really certain. Uh, if you have to do it for four weeks, that sounds more like a maintenance dose to me. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, I'm not going to speculate about how quickly creatine reverts to baseline in the brain. Cause I have absolutely never looked at that, at that data. One thing I will note though, uh, guanidino acetic acid is a creatine precursor. If you're really interested in cognitive benefits of creatine, might be worth looking into that. It is available as a supplement and it might be better for increasing uh, brain saturation of creatine. So it's kind of like a citrulline versus arginine type. Yeah, type yeah. Situation. So there is some reason to believe that uh, taking that precursor might be more effective. Uh, and there is some, some research to back that up. Um, so anyway, creatine in the brain, is it affected by dietary creatine intake from food? It's not really a big enough fluctuation to move the needle. Uh, even omnivores aren't getting that many grams of creatine in their typical diet. Um, can you move the needle with supplementation? Probably, but it takes a pretty high dose. When does this actually matter? Uh, the most promising research showing some kind of benefits related to uh, cognitive processing or just like recovery from brain injury, it's usually when there's some pretty noteworthy stressors that, that are actually challenging the brain. Uh, so we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, there, there, there's looking at things like sleep deprivation, uh, Alzheimer's disease, uh, various uh, pathologies influencing the brain, uh, of course, traumatic, major or mild traumatic brain injury. Usually it's in the case of stressors. Uh, another one is like sleep deprivation or hypoxia combined with exercise, which is energetically, I, I think, pretty demanding on the brain. Uh, usually you're going to see these types of things in stressor, stressful situations for the brain. Um, so like your average person who's just taken like five grams a day or they have like a pre-workout with like three grams a day. And they're like, oh, this is doing wonders for my cognition on like a normal day-to-day -day basis. I'm honest. I mean, I'm open to it, but I'm pretty skeptical based on the vibes I get from the literature. It's not something that's been explored a great deal, but I, I, it's it's going to be neutral to, to slightly positive. So I, I'm not trying to like, uh, you know, rain on anybody's parade, but you know, I, I think the biggest likelihood of benefit comes from really high dose supplementation in the context of actual, you know, stressful situations to the brain, like I said, uh, clinical pathologies, uh, brain injuries, sleep deprivation, things like that. Uh, but while I'm on this topic, uh, there's one thing that I kind of have to, to mention. There was a thing going around back in the day where everybody said, oh, if you're a vegetarian, you have to take creatine. Otherwise, your brain simply is not going to work. Uh, and as you can tell from the things I've said already, that's a weird statement because like vegetarian versus omnivore brain creatine levels are very similar. So yeah. you might be wondering where that came from. As far as I can tell, that was largely driven by one paper. Uh, and it was uh, a trial where it's kind of like the creatine and, and like, does creatine make you bald? Concerned? Yeah. Yeah. Or does, does caffeine make creatine ineffective concerns? 
Yeah. Although yeah. that one's getting up there. That's got the, like five papers. Yeah, now. but but I'm saying like initially it yeah, was just yeah, based yeah. on one thing. It, um, it's weird. Like the uh, the supplement with maybe the most research on it seems like the things people discuss the most are maybe the least supported uh, uh, aspects in that entire body of research. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so like with the vegetarian omnivore thing, people are like, oh, for the cognitive effects, vegetarians very much need it. If you go to the paper that everybody cites to say that, the only defensible conclusion is not that creatine supplementation has a special effect for cognition in vegetarians. It's that creatine makes omnivores way dumber and vegetarians are simply immune to that effect. Like that is the direct interpretation of the data. Do I believe that? Absolutely not. I think it was a false positive that caused just a fluky, poor performance in the omnivore group on the cognitive. I think it was like a memory task or something like yeah. that. But yeah, so like people said like, okay, uh, this, for some reason, <laughs> vegetarians who were on creatine did not suffer this huge drop off in cognitive performance. And that just got kind of twisted around into saying creatine has a way more favorable cognitive effect in vegetarians when that's just not at all what the data actually showed. Uh, so it was kind of like a misinterpretation that through a game of telephone really picked up in the research world and then got kind of relayed outside of the research world. Uh, so conclusions here. Uh, Creatine's nice. It's it's very, very good for high-intensity exercise performance. There's little glimpses that it does nice stuff for other systems in the body, other tissues, other organ systems. There, there's, you know, I'm not trying to be negative about creatine. It's very, very nice. The cognitive stuff isn't quite as supported for, like, day-to-day -day use. Like I said, uh, you know, traumatic brain injury, various pathologies impacting the brain, maybe sleep deprivation. Um, you know, there are instances where creatine appears to be somewhat helpful, uh, but generally speaking, it takes a pretty high dose. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that's uh, th that's about all I have to say about uh, cognitive aspects of creatine. Might be slightly helpful with a normal dose that's kind of, you know, the the standard five grams a day that you take for exercise might be helpful in some situations, but I, I wouldn't, uh, I certainly like, you know, sometimes people are like, you know what, I'm not noticing anything in the gym, but I'm afraid to go off creatine because I don't want to get dumber. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think there's any evidence to support that type of approach. Makes sense to me. Um, all right. I, th I think I, yeah, I think I've covered what I wanted to cover here. Uh, what do you have for the Q and A? Yeah. So I, I've got two, uh, I think you focused on the Facebook thread, so I went to Reddit. Uh, and so one from Rose Curry. Uh, Is there any detriment to mouth breathing versus nose breathing, either chronically or during exercise? So, I mean, based on uh, our comment section on Instagram, there are plenty of mouth breathers who, who seem to be doing just fine. Um, so that's a snarky response uh but no, well, no so I, i'm very interested in this because anyone who's followed our podcast knows that for the first two years of it i couldn't breathe through my nose correct yeah um but yeah no so i i looked into this before and um was it because you couldn't breathe through your nose still can't <laughs> um, but no no it, it was because there was um there was a thread in the stronger by science facebook group maybe like three years ago uh, I forget the name of it, but there there was a book about breathing and this guy being like, ah, every, everyone breathes wrong. And that's what's causing all of these uh, health problems. 
And so I, I remember looking into into the research then, and it's it's a it's one of those areas of research that's kind of a Rorschach test, I would say. Because the thing about breathing, like uh, habitually breathing through your mouth versus your nose, is ultimately, um, so so you are probably going to find some acute effects, uh, largely because um, like like breathing, um, like breathing is accomplished by by the phrenic nerve, like by and large, that's what controls the diaphragm. Um, and the phrenic nerve is uh, uh, an offshoot of the vagus nerve, which controls a lot of the parasympathetic nervous system. And so like you can you can affect parasympathetic tone to some extent with like purposeful deep nasal breathing. And so, like, unsurprisingly, if if people breathe through their nose versus their mouth acutely, there are some some small physiological differences. But I don't think that's all that interesting because ultimately, it's a matter of of how are people breathing most of the time, day to day, long term. Um, and when it comes to that, that's not really an area of research that's like super amenable to RCTs. Because, you know, ultimately, if we're interested in, like, what are health effects 20 years down the line? Like, you can't, like, breathing is a subconscious process. You don't, you don't think about it. Um, I mean, un- unless you are thinking about it because you're concerned about the way you're breathing. But most of the time, you're not thinking about it. And so, however you breathe, you're, you're just going to kind of revert to it. So, it's not really amenable to long-term interventions and so for any of this stuff, it's, it's very, very difficult to establish causation. And so you can find some areas of research where there are some uh, negative effects that are associated with predominantly breathing through the mouth versus the nose. So poor sleep quality. Um, there's some indication that it might uh, have an effect on, on learning. So people who are like behind in school tend to breathe through their mouth at a slightly higher rate than, than people who aren't. Um, and, but you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's hard to say whether the, the breathing pattern itself is causing those differences in outcomes that you're seeing. So if, if you're, uh, if you're on board with the idea that breathing through your nose is good, breathing through your mouth is bad, you can look at that and be like, Oh, boom, like this is evidence of, of what I think and what I believe. If, you're more skeptical, you could look at that and say, ah, it's, it's mere association. And I personally think that it's either mere association or potentially even reverse causation. So another thing that happens is when you are experiencing some amount of, of stress, both physical stress and psychogenic stress, you become more likely to breathe through your mouth uh, largely because like, that's kind of part of the fight or flight response. Like your, your breathing rate picks up. Uh, so you can like fuel your muscles with, <laughs> for exercise, like do good oxidative metabolism in case you either need to fight something or run away. And so, you know, does breathing through your mouth, like cause an elevated stress response or are people who are just generally experiencing more stress, more likely to breathe through their mouths? You know, it's, it's hard to say, uh, which which one it is? I think it's I think it's more just that people who are experiencing more stress are are breathing through their mouths, um, and you also don't know if there's some sort of like major uh, confounding factor in play. So, you know, maybe people who breathe through their mouth also 
like maybe two people in this room, do so due to chronic sinus issues. And maybe there are deleterious effects of living with chronic sinus issues, and the breathing through your mouth is simply a symptom of whatever is actually the root cause of the problem. The sinus issues themselves or whatever is causing the chronic sinus issues. Um, so yeah, I, it, it is an area of research where if you go into it looking for evidence that breathing through your nose is good and breathing through your mouth is bad, it is not hard to find that evidence. If you go into that area of research more skeptical and you want to say like, hey, I'm looking for really solid stuff that actually you know, demonstrates causal evidence for some of this stuff, you're going to have a really hard time finding that. So it's, it's not hard to get out of it what you want to get out of it. I personally am skeptical that it matters all that much. Um, I, I think either reverse causation or uh, confounding effects are, are far more likely than just breathing through your mouth itself per se being bad. Um, but yeah, uh, I... I will say that I don't think there's a really, really firm answer there yet. Uh, let's see. The other one I wanted to answer was by what you expect, double underscore, uh, who, who says slash asks, uh, something I've wondered for a while, why do a lot of people seem to somewhat assume that a lot of nutrition principles for health don't apply to them just because they lift weights, are active, and or have above average body comp? Examples include thinking that high intakes of saturated fat and sodium, especially sodium, are permissive to health outcomes just because of individual activity slash body comp status, which is, of course, not true because they have linear independent associations with high blood pressure slash heart disease, etc. I've heard so many versions of, quote, it probably doesn't matter because you're active slash aren't obese, close quote, and I often think that advice isn't always as accurate as some assume. I wonder where the sentiment comes from, slash, if there are notable examples of this you'd like to mention. So, uh, yeah, I, I do think that that is a, is a good thought and something that may be nice for a deep dive at some point. But I, I do think that it's definitely something that's kind of a case-by-case -case basis. And I think that there are several... Um, several unstated assumptions that go into that type of conclusion, that type of analysis. So so just kind of diving into it, that sort of statement, like, hey, if, if you're active and have decent body comp, like this nutrition principle for health doesn't really apply to you, sometimes that is true. Um, so for example, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Uh, some people are concerned about high sugar intake or high fructose intake uh, in particular. And I mean, as far as that goes, like to simplify a relatively large body of literature, um, there might be something to that. Like if you're relatively sedentary and consuming a lot of sugar, there might be some some negative downstream effects of that. But if you are quite active, have relatively high sugar intake, especially if you're also in a calorie deficit, it seems like it just doesn't matter. So there are, there are situ certain situations where a nutrition recommendation with, with health in mind does apply to one population and doesn't apply to another population. Um, I also think that one of the things motivating this, this type of thought is sometimes just to kind of like get oneself off the hook for a way that you have to eat in pursuit of some other goal. So for example, um, 
you know, if someone is a CrossFit athlete or an endurance athlete, or even just like a super heavyweight powerlifter or strongman, and in order to fuel your performance and, and just maintain weight, um, if you're trying to get down five, 6,000 calories per day, that's going to be pretty hard to do if you're trying to eat like quote unquote clean. And so Dude, imagine trying to do that on a low sugar, low sodium diet. Insane. Yeah. I can't, I can't even conceive of that. No. Um, and I don't think most people can conceive of that. And so, you know, I, I think that, uh, people who primarily have performance goals might want to tell themselves like, look, I got to do what I got to do to get down this many calories. Uh, performance is very important to me. This is how I have to eat to fuel my performance. Uh, and so I'm just going to assume that this is all fine. Uh, like I, I think that there, <laughs> I think that there's some amount of that, uh, in play. Um, I also think it is true to some extent that some of the specific benefits that one might get from eating like quote unquote healthy foods are also benefits that one would get from exercise. So for example, uh, there are plenty of benefits from eating antioxidant rich fruits. Uh, and, and we kind of joked about, uh, uh, Paul Saladino being afraid of vegetables and, and defense chemicals and vegetables, uh, last episode. So like, it is true that there are chemicals and vegetables that are like trying to kill things that are eating them. We are big enough that those chemicals don't kill us. But they do cause some amount of oxidative stress. And one of the reasons vegetables are good for you is that your body responds to that stressor of the vegetable by increasing endogenous antioxidant levels, endogenous antioxidant activity. So that that that's one of the, I think that's a very cool thing about vegetables. That's one of the reasons they're good for you, uh, in, in addition to like fiber intake and phytonutrients and other stuff. Um, but yeah, so, you know, those are those are discrete benefits of two categories of food that are typically thought to be very good for you. Those are also benefits you get from exercise. So when you exercise, that causes oxidative stress. And as a result, your body's endogenous antioxidant system produces more antioxidants. The activity of those antioxidants increases. So there, there's, you know, I, I do think that it's still probably an additive benefit, like exercising and eating vegetables probably better than exercising and not eating vegetables. But if you exercise and eat vegetables, there there are a lot of similar things going on on a cellular level that you would see in someone who doesn't eat exercise and does eat vegetables. Like it, you're you're causing similar physiological effects. Maybe making vegetable intake slightly less important, still important, still good for you, but you you are already getting some of those same adaptations just from doing exercise. So I, I think that's a dynamic uh, as well. And, and there's also a, kind of a similar situation where sometimes exercise is directly attenuating some of the potentially deleterious impacts of a food so like also true yeah one of the things that came up was like sodium and and i think about like an endurance runner who is running like crazy uh which you know be having high cardiorespiratory fitness generally tends to to drive blood pressure downward and they're just sweating out a ton of sodium during their, you know, runs in the summer and things like that. So you can see where for that individual, there are directly protective mechanisms in place that counteract the the kind of primary thing you'd be concerned about, which would be 
the sodium incre- increasing blood pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there is, to to some extent, the the things that people are the 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 sorts of statements that this uh, uh, question comment was responding to. Sometimes it's just true. So in the case of sugar intake, sometimes uh, you know it would still be good to eat healthy things, but you you get yourself off the hook a little bit because you're you are causing similar physiological adaptations from doing exercise. Uh, however. There is a very large kernel of truth to what uh, what you expect was asking here on Reddit, um, and, and I think that a lot of times when people either say, uh, you know, hey, you don't have to worry about this nutrition advice for health because you're exercising, or they tell themselves that, like, eh, you know what, I'm I'm healthy, I'm exercising, I don't need to worry about this stuff all that much. I think that I think that implicitly, what people are often doing is comparing risk levels between populations and and they kind of have implicitly a population in mind where they say okay this population is at an elevated risk and i consider this level of elevated risk to be too much so as long as what i'm doing keeps me below that level of risk i am therefore good so for example uh the comment mentioned saturated fat intake and so, you know, if you're pretty active and you consume a decent amount of saturated fat, your risk of cardiovascular disease uh, is probably lower than someone who is sedentary and consumes the same amount of saturated fat. And it may be comparable to someone who's sedentary and consumes very little saturated fat. And so you look at that and you say, well, okay, I'm comfortable with the level of risk of being sedentary and consuming low saturated fat. I am active, therefore I can consume a fair bit of saturated fat and not be at elevated risk relative to the level of risk I am comfortable with. So you might be able to lower your risk even more if you are quite active and consumed very low saturated fat, but just kind of what what you're implicitly pegging your brain to uh, in terms of what you perceive to be risk you're comfortable with versus uncomfortable with you know, the, the way you're eating, given your activity levels, still keeps you below that level of risk that you're comfortable with, even though you could probably reduce your risk further uh, if you wanted to. And so I, I think that's largely what's going on. Like, I, I think people just kind of look at it and they're like, okay, what is the general health risks for people who are sedentary and engage in all of the most healthy dietary behaviors? So you kind of look at that and you're like, okay, if I am active and exercising and have good body composition, what can I get away with for my level of risk to still be the same as those people? Like, I I think that's kind of the mental math people are doing. And I also think that that comports pretty well with some people's stated reason for exercising. Like, it's it's not uncommon uh, to hear people say, you know, hey, hey, I, I exercise so I can eat what I want without gaining weight. I, I think that there's, to some extent, and very understandably so, uh, a lot of people who don't want to change their dietary choices and don't want to change their dietary behaviors. And so it's it's just a, a question of, given the fact that you've predetermined you're not going to make those dietary changes, how can you still get your risk of chronic health problems down to a level that you're comfortable with? And and so I think that's ultimately what people are doing. And then what they'll tell you is, 
hey, actually, it's fine to do this because I'm exercising. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that doing those good things wouldn't further reduce their risk. Ultimately, what it means is their their risk level is at a level they're comfortable with, given the fact that they're exercising. And, and like I said, I think that's a very understandable thing. Um, I think that there is maybe too much of an inclination among particularly like sciencey people to say very confidently like, oh, food is fuel. That's all it is. Like you're, you're putting fuel in the gas tank to fuel performance, whatever body comp outcomes you're interested in. When like food and eating behavior is a lot more complex than that. Like there's, uh, you know, there, you, there's an emotional response that you get from eating. Like you might have uh, certain memories and feelings around particular meals. There's a social aspect to it. Um, there's certainly a cultural aspect to it as well. Uh, and so, you know, I, I completely understand uh, people who largely don't want to make dietary changes and their brain kind of goes to, okay, give, given that I'm not going to do this shit, uh, what can I do to still get my chronic disease risk to a level I'm comfortable with? But then, then I think those statements of, hey, I am exercising, so none of this stuff affects me. I, I do think that that's, at least to some extent, oftentimes mental gymnastics that people are doing to justify decisions that they had already made. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the cultural component because one of my favorite things to do when I'm traveling is to sample the local fuels and see <laughs> how differently my, my yeah. body performs. That's kind of the main reason I do it. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, like, you know, 93 octane is the same everywhere, but, uh, you know, you're probably going to get a lot better empanadas in Mexico than you will in Pennsylvania. Right. All right. Uh, I do have one more question I wanted to get to. Uh, Patrick Umphrey God damn asked it. me, uh, do I do anything specific for back pain? Oh, wait, no. Yeah, yeah. Specifically, okay. the back pain I get from carrying Greg on every show. Uh, not necessarily every show. Um for the time being, yes, because he is currently a permanent guest co-host. But anyway, Patrick, I appreciate your question. I definitely understand for sure where it's coming <laughs> from. Uh, but paradoxically, it's kind of nice because uh, sometimes Greg's uh, mistakes and oversights give me ideas for future segments. It kind of inspires me to pick up the slack. And that's what's going to play us out today. I need to do some cleanup and correct uh, fake news, Greg, over here. No, I'm um, going to jump in real quick. Here's a here's a history lesson, Patrick. The whole point of this podcast initially was because we were bringing Eric into the business and people knew who I was. They didn't know who he was. And so I was like, okay, what what is a venue where we can introduce Eric to the audience and they can feel like they, they can get to know him and that he's not just like the weird other dude who is now along for the ride in this business that Greg built. And so magnanimously, we said, Eric, podcast, and you'll be the main guy and this is how we can endear you to the audience. And now you turn around and you take Patrick's question as... Uh, a, a foot in the door for you to talk shit when it was predetermined. The podcast is this way out of the goodness of my heart. And uh, I am, I am just furious that you would, uh, you would stoop to this level. Yeah. That's not how I remember it. 
uh, but that's okay. Well, that's that's exactly <laughs> what happened. Uh, okay, so no, this is uh, actually really cool. So we had talked a little bit about the origins of exercise science as a field, um, and m- my understanding, much like yours, like the the kind of short Cliff Notes version, is like, oh man, Harvard Fatigue Lab. It was really sick. That's where it all started. But I was kind of curious about digging in before that and kind of what was around before Harvard Fatigue Lab really hit its stride. And of course, I'm, I'm joking about corrections here because with a field like exercise science or exercise physiology, you're never going to be able to pinpoint an exact start date because it's many different fields combining into an applied focus, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, like I remember back in the day, Ripito wrote an article and he was like, Exercise science is so dumb. What you should be doing is studying physics and chemistry and biology. And I was like, did you Google one curriculum for exercise science? Also, well, no, I mean, his his, his point was a, a hilariously self-serving point because he, he said, like, just just get a degree in a hard science so you can learn, like, what science is and how to do it. And then, yeah, like, exercise science is kind of a kiddie pool of science. And so if, if you... If you get to know a real science, you'll be able to apply that knowledge and, and those skills to, to to the exercise thing. And to some extent, I kind of agree with that. Uh, but also, his background is in geology. Yeah. And of the hard sciences that one might be able to apply to uh, to exercise science, I, I would definitely put like biology and chemistry uh a little bit ahead of geology personally. Well, but geology is the hardest hard science because it's literally rocks. That is true. That yeah. is true. So that's my response. I, I stand corrected. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, uh, that that's kind of, to me, the beauty of an exercise science degree is they're like, hey, before you even think about doing exercise science, you have to go through chemistry, biology, physics, etc. But anyway, that's beside the point. Talking about the origins of exercise science as a field. Uh, little timeline of important stuff. I, I was looking through a textbook by Ketch, Ketch, and McArdle. This one was actually McArdle, Ketch, and Ketch. I think they alternate the order with each edition. I was looking at the seventh edition, and it actually gives a really nice history of the field. And they go all the way back. I mean, they're talking about stuff like several hundred years ago, like way before the 1700s, because anything to do with chemistry and physics, you could say, oh, yeah, we use some of that. But... uh I kind of jumped to the part here. Uh, some of the the applied anatomy stuff was really picking up in the 1700s. And two things that I thought were just interesting. Uh, there were two professors at the University of Bologna in Italy. First and, university. Yeah. yeah. So they were there in the 1700s. Uh, one was Laura Bassi. And she was actually, uh, as, as I understand it, the first woman to earn a PhD. Uh, and she actually had to conduct her experiments at home because they're like a woman PhD. We don't know how to deal with this. Like we yeah. are, we don't know how to manage this. We, we, we never expected it kind of, um, which is obviously not good, but it's kind of an interesting look at like what the, the first woman with a PhD, like what that looked like as a working environment was mm-hmm. like doing your experiments at home and trying to keep up with the other professional aspects of working at this university. Uh, alongside her, uh, also working in anatomy at the same university was Anna Mirandi Manzolini. 
And she was an expert at creating wax models and also wood models of different organ systems, even things like the inner ear. And they still used her models in the medical school for hundreds of years. Like they were so good. Uh, so anyway, jump forward. Let's talk 1860s at Amherst College. Uh, Edward Hitchcock Jr. was a physician. He was hired as a professor of hygiene and physical education in the Department of Physical Culture. He was appointed in 1861, and you could claim that he is the first exercise physiology professor, just based on the, the tasks that he handled, his interest areas. He was largely influenced by the writings of Austin Flint Jr., who was a physician who wrote extensively about exercise. Uh, and like I said, he was appointed in 1861 and was involved with some very exercise physiology type research that involves Civil War uh, soldiers back in the 1860s. Jumping to Harvard, in 1891, they established their first formal exercise physiology lab. So Harvard actually had an ex-phys lab before the Harvard Fatigue Lab. I didn't know that uh, prior to this. Uh, so they also established the first degree program around that time in this field. Now, the Big Ten they also were pretty active. They had a number of departments that were considered physical culture slash kinesiology. Uh, Michigan State, for example, they what they currently have as a kinesiology department, they say it began in 1899. Uh, and uh, the team up north had a program in 1894. Illinois had a program 1895. But here's a fun fact for you. Uh, Michigan State, this like physical culture kinesiology program from 1899 through 1971. So only like 50 years ago, the, the head of that department at some point in their time at the college also served as the head coach of the football team. That's pretty cool. Which is wild. Cause like, dude, the divergence that college football has had since then, like that university, Michigan state pays their head football coach. $9.5 million a year. If you could still get that gig, if you were like the chair of an exercise science department, I would not be an assistant blogger. If, if there, <laughs> if there were $10 million contracts to be had, it'd be like, Hey, you're the chair of the department. You want to coach the Buckeyes? I'd be like, yeah, I, that would be great. Um, yeah. So, uh, in 18, 1889, I think the, there were three articles about physical activity in the American journal of physiology, uh, there is a lab at Carnegie Institute looking at en energy metabolism in 1904. In the 1920s, a series of other labs popped up. Uh, George Williams College, uh, University of Illinois, Springfield College in the 1920s. And then the Harvard Fatigue Lab comes along in 1927 uh, and, of course, made huge strides, really accelerated the field. And is largely viewed as kind of the inflection point where the field really started to take off. Uh, now, of course, the summary I just gave, like I said, it's from McArdle Catch and Catch, 7th edition. I mostly covered the American stuff here. I was just kind of following the text. It's very important to recognize there were things happening all over the world. Uh, major breakthroughs in Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Finland, specifically around this time. Also some stuff going on in France, I believe. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was happening all in this time frame kind of popping up all over the world. And people said, listen, we need to get as swole as we possibly can. And by the 1890s, it was pretty clear that we all needed to get uh, very, very fit and, and study how to do that. So 
yeah, it's it's a really interesting uh, history of how this field came together and a lot of the earlier uh, justifications for establishing these departments and labs. Unsurprisingly, it was focused on military. Yeah. It was uh, creating the human war machine uh, and figuring out why humans fatigue and how to make them more physically robust and resilient. Um, but yeah, it took off from there. Well, good deal, man. All right. Uh, so I think that does it for this episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Uh, we had a little bit of everything, some meta science, some on-topic stuff, and a little history lesson. Uh, so as always, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.